Hello, Politics in Question listeners. This is James Walner, and I am here to let you know that we recorded this episode on May 27th, just days before Americans took to the streets across the nation to protest the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, and Sean Reed. While we do not mention these tragic events specifically in the episode because of when we recorded it, we nevertheless hope that our discussion in it can contribute to many of your ongoing conversations about American democracy. In the coming weeks, we hope you will join us as we start to take on these issues more directly, seeking to amplify the voices of those who have studied them closely for years, whose lives and perspectives differ from our own, and whose research can broaden our understanding of the challenges Black Americans face on a daily basis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at uh, New America. And I'm proud to introduce our special guest today, Mike Signer, who, uh, among many things, is a practicing attorney, a writer, a PhD trained political theorist, sometimes university lecturer, and also the uh, former mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, and was mayor during the 2017 Unite the Right rally. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Mike. Thanks, thanks so much for for joining us this morning. Um, you want to add anything to your uh, your bio here and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background before we jump into today's question? Most significantly, just by way of explanation, if you hear anybody crying or screaming or demanding snacks in the background, I'm the dad of two five-year-old twin boys also, um, and we're all working from home nowadays, so they are um, part of my <laughs> my work environment, and during the the events in the um, in the book, they were two years old, and they actually come up as characters because it's it's meant to be a pretty honest account of what it's like to be uh, you know a local elected official nowadays. So, but no, I think that was a pretty good overview. Great. So, based on on your experience and the themes that we like to emphasize in this, this podcast, and on your book "Cry Havoc," which I spent some time over the last couple of days with, we're going to focus on this question about how how can process and democracy and how we normally understand things like government accountability how can these help us deal with the problem of extremism so i think we're we're each going to go around and talk a little bit about where where we are on this question and uh you know at this time i have no idea when this will be released uh, but we're recording on june 3rd 2020 and I'll start by saying that one of the things that I think about a lot in terms of the capacity of what we understand as the normal processes of government to deal with crisis or to deal with, um, in this case, a you know extremist, white supremacist, violent threat, is that we have we lack a clear public understanding that's coherent about what we should expect from our government what government should do to try to to help in those situations or who should be protected from whom, um, what the role of government might be. James, do you want to jump in on this? Yeah. Uh, First, thank you for for joining us, Mike. I'm excited to have a political theorist on the podcast. And I would point out a political theorist who has experience in the real world as well. I think that's extraordinarily important. And 
I think this is a really important topic, and I think both your expertise and your experience can help us to to better understand it here. Because political systems, as the current um, events um, happening around the nation right now indicate, I, I think political systems like ours, self-governments, are at their most vulnerable during moments of crisis. And to appreciate why, I you know, I try to think in terms of you know, kind of violent conflict versus political conflict instead of extremism and its corollary of, I guess, normalism. But the latter frame, in my in my mind, I think exacerbates the danger that crises pose by amplifying the uncertainty that they bring out um, and amplifying their unsettling nature. And it encourages, uh, crises have a tendency to encourage people to see political opponents as, as illegitimate and to deny them the ability to appear, to appear in the public square, right? Because their very appearance is destabilizing. And that, that makes self-government in a very real way impossible. And so I, I typically approach it as a problem of violence in politics, not necessarily extremism. And, and what I'm very intrigued about with your experience is, with the local government level, it's the closest to the people and it's the it's the it's the sphere of government where people most directly participate. And there's the tension and how do you balance um, allowing access and, and having and welcoming people into the public realm and then but at the same time trying to ensure mutual respect and respectful disagreement, I think, is extraordinarily per, uh, important and a very, very difficult thing to tackle. So I, I'm looking forward to, to hearing what you think about all this today. Great. Lee, you want to jump in with some initial remarks? Yeah, so I'll jump in with some uh, some thoughts. And, you know, again, just want to uh, say that Mike's book, Cry Havoc, is just a, a really uh, thoughtful and tremendously engaging read about the events of Charlottesville and the, the a larger way of thinking about how the political process can respond to extremism. And so I guess there's kind of two big themes that that I am thinking about in terms of the relationship between the political process and extremism. And one is the sense in which our politics have so much become this kind of all or nothing us against them uh, fight for really the the soul and identity of our nation and the way in which th- this kind of uh, just hyper-partisan, hyper-polarized, uh, zero-sum politics is spilling out in these kinds of, of clashes uh, that really don't allow or not even designed really to achieve compromise, but are organized around dominating the other side and imposing a ex- exclusionary uh, narrow vision of American identity on the other side. And I think that's a particular challenge in, in these moments and that there, we, we've, we have these conflicts that are spilling out of a politics that is not about finding compromise and balance, but it's about imposing uh, an exclusionary vision of the country. Um, and secondarily, I, I think there's this hyper-nationalization of politics. And to, to James's point uh, that, you know, local institutions, local governments are, are closest to the people, but rather than dealing with local issues, they've become uh, forums for national partisan and identity conflict. And that Charlottesville, you know, it was not issues that sprung up from Charlottesville, but it was rather outsiders descending on Charlottesville uh, 
because they thought that this would be a good place to stage a, a national conflict. So I think one of the questions that, that I have is that sort of the challenge of local governments and local institutions to handle and process national conflicts. And I know there are a lot of folks who think that maybe we would solve some of our national conflicts by localizing them and and trying to, to take away some of that zero-sum, all-or-nothing national partisan conflict. So I, I'd love to kind of explore some of those themes in our conversation. Mike, what do you think? Uh, look, these are all, I'm, I'm very flattered and excited for this discussion because um, with political scientists specifically, um, it, you know, I, I have a PhD in political science, political science theory, as you said, but the 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 experience was were that the book is about were so raw and searing, and I thought significant in part because Charlottesville is going to be one of those touchstones of modern American history that that is accumulating different meanings over time. So like even with Joe Biden running about it or Spike Lee putting it at the end of his movie Black Klansman or it, it kind of, or you know how it how it figures in now with the events in the last week after Minneapolis and George Floyd's murder um but I didn't really have the luxury even in the book and certainly not at the time of writing uh, of of doing you know being the mayor to kind of actively theorize and analyze so I I wrote the book in the spirit of kind of getting it all down on paper and focusing really on the gray areas and the kind of granular details of this experience of havoc unfolding and being somebody who believed in deliberative democracy and was kind of fighting for it and talking about it a lot. But I wanted, in some sense, for other people to be able to make sense of it after reading it. So there's some, there is kind of a big theoretical framework in the book. Um, about uh, the, I, I wouldn't just call it process, I would say kind of the whole core set of norms and institutions of, that are deliberative democracy is kind of this island in a raging sea. The island is supposed to be the design of the constitution. If you look back at the founding documents and the debates that they were having, when we started all this and when the states kind of knitted their constitutions together into the federal constitution, what the federal constitution was meant to avoid in terms of, you know, complete mayhem happening in the United States at that time, the, the danger of insurrection, the danger of demagogues. Uh, you know, I, I, and I had written a book about James Madison, um, and I, I really am fascinated by this kind of problem that goes back to the ancient Greeks, which is how do you use self-government to ward off the tendency of human beings to tear themselves apart, especially when given liberty. And that, that problem is so elemental, continues to be so fascinating, and it, it kind of manifests itself in so many different ways. Um, the book is kind of about that problem, but told through this day-to-day, month-to-month recounting of the havoc that was unfolding in Charlottesville well before the Unite the Right rally. And there is kind of a, a um, you know, again, the book is meant really to tell the story rather than exclusively kind of analyze it. Uh, 
but there is a big claim in the in the book which is there's this whole you know literature around agonist the agonistic idea and that that's you know your fancy ten dollar word for a theory of politics and history that sees conflict as essential and as productive even if it sucks to experience and we don't like to look at it so you even know that from your personal experience or from these cliches that the broken bone you know the bone is strongest the broken part or you know like in the business literature now there's all this stuff about failing upward and the value of failure and it, there's a lot in political science and history about the value of 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 agonistic conflict it comes from greek tragedy it's underneath the word agon you know agony hannah arendt wrote a lot about this and i spend some time in the book you know really thinking about that as one way to understand both my experience and my sense that there can and there should be a productive upward arcing end to all of the otherwise incredibly um, traumatic experiences on all fronts related to not just this one, but these three white nationalist events that happened in, in Charlottesville. And I, and I think I contend that American constitutionalism and the American democratic experiment benefits from being able to grow through the through pain and and when in, internal sort of self-grown enemies you know look at Jim Crow or McCarthyism test American constitutionalism that if it's engaged in the right way and if thinking citizens and stakeholders and leaders and scholars and politicians and everybody are are engaged in in trying to move forward from these traumas, then it actually can help the system achieve greater versions of itself. That that's kind of the biggest claim, and I and I have a lot of evidence where I in the book toward the end where I talk about specific innovations that Charles will spark political repercussions. Um, but that is not there's not like a Pollyanna take there. I mean, it was a it was a grievous um, experience for. Lots of people, um, thousands of people still are traumatized. It was an awful experience being the city's mayor, um, but I still want to explore that idea, which is where does this, where does this all go? And whether it's exposing usefully how violent the alt-right movement is, the true violence, whether it's forcing our rule of law to innovate and come up with better tools to clamp down on the potential of political violence, whether it's um, you know spawning more robust uh, searches for true racial equity in our public policy, um, you know better ideas around race and the past through our public spaces, because a lot of this had to do with a with a, a Confederate statue that was a whole debate unfolded around um, in Charlottesville. I, I I believe that that this what happened in the city will also play a role in us getting to a much better place on all of those questions, but not without cost. And that's how that's how the agonistic process works. And you you have to kind of get your arms around all of it, which is what I try to do in the book. Yeah, that's a really great framework just to think about it. And I want 
to ask some questions eventually about the national experience of Charlottesville as, you know, as someone who's thought a lot about it. And I've, I mean, watched it from Wisconsin. I've never even been to Charlottesville. But also, I want to ask, since we have this opportunity as having, you're, you're our first elected official on the podcast uh, from, a, sorry, our first local elected official. We've had a U.S. senator. So now we have a local um, perspective. So I kind of want to ask, what is the unique element of local government when we, th- when we think about process and accountability and democracy and extremism? It's a, it's a great question. And I, and I spend a lot of time in the book on these extremely specific, uh, you know, I think dramatic uh, elements of the experience of being, of being a mayor, of being a local elected official. There was this, um, there was a uh, an HBO miniseries a couple of years ago called Show Me a Hero that starred Oscar Isaac, and he was a mayor in a town in New Jersey that was and trying to desegregate public housing, and a, a very tragic story based on a real life story. And it was, you know, I, I, I joked a lot about Parks and Rec. I mean, Parks and Rec, I would I would tease sometimes. I would say the thing about it is a great show, but it's not a satire <laughs> um, because so much of of what happens in local government is that colorful. And people do deal with local government a lot. Um, the thing about and Charlottesville is a a lot of the the details, the story, and the and factors that led into the havoc that unfolded were based on confusions and and um, and the essences of local government. Charlotte, 50% of American cities have a city manager form of government, which a lot of people don't know about, where there's a, an administrative professional who's tasked with the operations of the government so the elected officials are kind of like the members of the board the the and the mayor is the chair of the board but people don't know that because they think the mayor is actually this strong command and control executive which i was not um you have constraints on local government uh that's anti-home rule which causes a lot of other frustrations where cities can't do things like just tear down statues or or ban firearms at public, you know, potentially violent public events because the state government has prevented them from doing that. So those details become very important in the story. But most fundamentally, to your question, you know, I had done a lot of other politics and government. I worked for the governor of Virginia and his Richmond office. I'd been on a presidential campaign. I'd been a um, White House intern a long time ago, and had seen in these different experiences how government you know, legislatively or executively functions. The thing is about the thing about city government is it's right in your face. You have people at the grocery store approaching you when you're picking out your produce, talking to you about a zoning issue or shrubs over their sidewalk or something they're frustrated about with parking on their street. You have we would do these town halls that were in the neighborhoods to try and create as much civic engagement or community engagement. Community engagement is a term that comes up a lot in well-run cities, but it's always a, a moving goal, a moving target, um, and especially in very liberal vocal cities where they want a lot of engagement. And I talk a lot about that dilemma in the book because um, I came under fire for just trying to uh, kind of democratize the engagement some because there were a bunch of people who were kind of monopolizing the TV time and really um, just attacking council all the time through these public comment sessions. And even that became a topic of great contention in Charlottesville way before a lot of these events happened. So the, the topic of how to establish a working democracy that's responsive, but also productive and deliberative, that gives vent to feelings, but isn't dominated by them, 
is a is a topic that kind of gets achieves its greatest flower in local local governments. And I'm friends with a lot of other mayors and a lot of other local elected officials around the country. And this is very common. It just doesn't usually make the national news. Um, we had huge fights in Charlottesville about my effort to put our meetings under Robert's Rules of Order, which was seen, I was called a tyrant. And somebody actually put up a, uh, a right-wing radio host, put up uh, um, a post that, that said Heil Signer. Incredibly ironic, given that I'm Jewish, which, which also became relevant a lot later on in the story, about my efforts to just have Robert's Rules of Order formally applied, whereas it's the default, you know, in in student council meetings and school board meetings and nonprofit meetings all around the country. But we had gotten so used in Charlottesville to this real free for all where people were, you know, there was lots of ad hominem attacks, endless debates, not debating when there's a motion on the floor um, because we hadn't been on under Robert's Rules of Order. So even bringing that into the, into our formal rules became a, a massive um, controversy a year before um, real extremes really started conflicting in our in our city. Um, so you, you know, I I I I think the thing about local government is that it is in your face. It's incredibly proximate. Um, some people get really. Some people don't care at all what their city government is doing. But there's a lot of people who care a lot. And uh, and it is a it and every elected official now, especially in an age of controversy, has to figure out how to navigate toward actual policymaking and away from just these kind of self-fulfilling controversies, especially the ones that are made for TV and for social media. Yeah, that's I, I found a lot of the the aspects in your book about some of the process fights and the response to the adoption of Robert's Rules of Order really, um, really fascinating as we think about the the role the rules play in, in democracy. And uh, Lee, I know you've also thought a lot about this and, you know, your work is really heavily focused on the way that rules can improve democracy. Do you want to weigh in here or pose a question? Yeah, I have, I mean, I have a, a ton of questions here, but I, but I want to think a little bit more about this uh, idea of participation in, in local government and the types of issues that people care about, you know, like zoning ordinances or removing shrubs or they, these are potholes or you know, it's the sort of stereotypical thing. But like these are very tangible, materialistic, distributive issues that, you know, can ultimately be resolved and there's accountability and there's results. Either the pothole, either the roads are fixed or they're not. Either garbage is picked up on time or it's not. And there are potentially non-zero uh, solutions to a lot of these types of issues, which are you know just about people getting basic services taken care of. You know, is there uh, you know, unemployment or employment, jobs, etc. Uh, and you know, th there's certainly controversy there in process, but there are there are ways to resolve and ways to make compromises and, and bargains there. Uh, and you know, contrast that to these sort of broader questions of national identity, of racism, of extremism that are really non-zero issues, zero or sorry, really zero-sum issues. Uh, and you know, I, I just curious about how those two uh, 
forces kind of play against each other at the at the level of city government? It's a, it's a great question, and um, I spend a lot of the book talking about exactly that dilemma. So I came in with a very strong misgiving about what I'd been seeing in the country, which I call uh, symbolic politics. I was actually in an earlier draft of the book, there was like some real political science stuff. I was going to call it semiotic politics. And then that was I, I, not, not the, a little too wordy, but it was basically a politics, which is about um, symbols and signs and the fan, you know, the really fancy word would be metonyms where, where you're debating about things that stand in for whole other schools of thought. And I, this has become much more common in age of social media, social media itself, these platforms were designed for, you know, to addict adolescents and get them in high state, their animal brains and high states of, of, um, you know, arousal and engagement and to make you basically really angry and think there's a hero and a villain and that issues really are very simple. Uh, and local government um, has been in, really invaded by that kind of thinking. And I wanted to put us back and do what I could in my position as mayor. And the mayor in Charlottesville is not elected popularly. You're selected from the city council um, in, a, in a vote from them. So I became mayor like the first meeting of, of city council. And, you know, there's sort of a, um, you know, an, an ironic um, tone, I think, to, to talking about how in retrospect, how uh, whimsical it was to think that I was going to be able to, to, you know, to stand against this sort of, you know, storm of, of symbolic politics. But I wanted to tell uh, on these issues that were symbolic, how, how, what it is like trying to achieve practical outcomes. So for instance, on this Confederate statue, um, we, there was a push from the far left and, and the black community in Charleston was deeply divided about this. Um, there were younger African-American activists who wanted these statues, um, uh, especially this one just torn down and removed, even though there was a state law and there was lots of complexity around the provenance and the, the uh, ownership of it. And, um, and then the, the many members of the older black community were coming to public hearings saying they didn't want it. They wanted it removed, they kept as teachable moments, which was kind of a, in and of itself, a, a subtle, you know, profound idea. And we set up a blue ribbon commission of race memorials in public spaces that was majority minority to hold six months of public hearings. And they ended up, a couple of members flipped their votes during these 17 hearings they held. And they said, we wanted to keep the statues inside the city. They gave us different options for doing that. And then we were, uh, you know, I tell about coming up with this um, they recommended that we transform the statue in place. And I met with this uh, architect who had done similar statuary and public installations. And he came up with this um, design that would have put these lenses, these tall kind of glass, plexiglass uh, towers all around this park that would have forced people to see the statue through testaments to, mod to, to injustice and to civil rights heroes. And, very interesting, practical, real idea for for a change and for changing in place, which was one of the recommendations. Um, and ultimately, the city council voted to just do the the, the zero sum position, which was get rid of the statue, even though that that led to a um, a stalemate because there was this law and there was an injunction filed under the law, and so the statue just stayed. It's still there actually today. 
although the state has passed a law allowing Charlottesville to move it, and it will be moved um, at the end, I, I believe, at the you know toward the in the middle of this year. Um, the statue itself totally changed after a terrorist attacked the city with the statue in mind, just like happened in Charleston when Dylan Roof, um, the, the white supremacist terrorist, um, caused the, the Republicans in the state to, to move the rebel flag. So the, you know, it, there's a lot in the book about how dynamic these issues are also and how, and I, I ended up changing my position um, as, as after the, the terrorist attack in the Unite the Right rally on the statue, but it was, you know, the, the, the work of focusing the public mind on what is actually happening and the hard choices that a lot of the time cause your eyes to roll back in your head. I mean, there's nothing more consequential over a city's future and more boring a lot of the time than a planning commission meeting about the comprehensive plan, say, which is gonna govern, you know, where, uh, whether you have single family homes, whether you have density or whether you have parks or where, whether you have development along a river or, you know, or, or the school budget. I mean, look at the debates about school budgets. This is how kids are going to get educated, but it gets very hard to get in the weeds and it gets even harder to have to make hard choices. Um, and I, one of the uh, kind of like a coda in the book, and it's a, it's sort of a mournful one is that because of the eruption of extremes and the the take of a lot of meetings after this event just when and leading up to it were just taken over and were were just dominated by heckling and by i think lee the kind of zero-sum politics you're describing where you were either with us or against us and and other if you weren't with us then you didn't deserve to talk and weren't allowed to talk uh it was it was, it was awful you really saw some some important complex uh real policies that needed to happen. Like I, I put a year into trying to get this abandoned hotel that's on the downtown mall redeveloped. And it was very complicated and required a performance agreement and parking and and um, a zoning exception. And, and all of that got torn down basically and stopped and votes flipped as a result of this kind of focus on equity after the and it got it got kind of lampooned as corporate welfare, but the uh, the very boring practicalities that went into why we needed this whole approach to get this hotel developed is exactly why it's sitting vacant today. So now, years later, you still have this hulk of a ten-story rotting building in the heart of Charlottesville downtown mall that was a casualty of the environment that developed and unfolded when deliberative local governance uh, with all of its annoying facts and focus on what is government actually doing got stopped by the the kind of um the the you know the the dance and the the storm of of extremes across the board that made actual policy making very hard so i wanted to tell with that said there's all kinds of other examples of actual progress that we did make before, during, and after these events that were like real significant policy changes, establishing a minority business uh, contracting program, um, significantly investing more in the schools, um, ex dramatically expanding the level of affordable housing during my, my term as mayor that was a directly connected to the events of August 12th, um, the Unite the Right rally. So it, it was a mixed bag. And I wanted to tell kind of the full story to, to show uh, just what it what it is how hard it is really fighting for actual progress at the local level in this 
especially when tempers are whipped up. Yeah, this is a really useful way to think about the boundaries between what we would define as symbolic politics and how that, you know, how that is distinct from, but also maybe how the distinction is a little bit blurry with more concrete politics. James, do you want to get in here? Yeah, I'd love to. I, I really want to, I'm intrigued by the discussion of the role of rules in democracy and democracy and Mike's uh, experience uh, with the opposition to imposing Robert's rules of order uh, um, during the tragic events in Charlottesville. And earlier you described deliberative democracy as an island in a raging sea. And Hannah Arendt, who you also mentioned, similarly refers to rules, I think, building on David Hume as islands of predictability in politics. And how we, it seems to me, how we view rules and the role they play reflects today, I think, a shift in how we think about politics. And and I think that's evident in our view of, of political conflict. And you And this, I think, comes out when you talk about um, the antagonistic uh, cooperation or conflict um, earlier as well. And you're right. I mean, look, there's good conflict. There's bad conflict. Hesiod in Works and Days talks about two kinds of strife. And political conflict is my term for good conflict is, you know, thinking back to Socrates and the Theotetus where, you know, our, our understanding of knowledge of the world around us, of reality in the round can only come about when we engage in a kind of deliberative discourse with one another, because we all see the world from a different perspective and in different senses. And therefore, our understanding and our knowledge of that world is incomplete without coming into contact with others um, who have a different perspective. And I think Madison builds on this, obviously, when he, you know, in Federalist 10 and 51, when he talks about how, uh, you know, out of the system that we have where people come together, they argue, they debate, uh, you know, he's not a relativist. He thinks that out of that, you get something approximating justice and the general good. You get a moment of transcendence. But that's a hard thing to appreciate. It's an easy thing to appreciate, I think, when you're sitting in your study reading a book. I think it's a hard thing to appreciate when you're engaged in in, in real life, when you're experiencing conflict yourself, and especially when the institutions that we have today, our political institutions, no longer appear to be working to the level to the extent that they once did, and I think that really has uh, triggered, I think, what I look at as a, a shift to a means-ends view of politics, to a production-oriented view of politics, where everything is about the end, and when that happens, the rules become very different. They become things that we rationalize away, that we break whenever we think we need to, because after all, the only thing that's important is the end, not the means. And this is a very powerful and a very compelling way of looking at the world for people who are frustrated, justifiably so, or unjustifiably so. And when you're in local government, how do you grapple with this shift if this shift is indeed something that's taken place? And how do you try to persuade people that the conflict is worth uh, the the frustration and the angst and sometimes yes the, the 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 suboptimal outcomes that come with it because how do you bring theory and practice together and i think they really are reconciled in the experience of our local government and i would love to hear how you grappled with that in your in your life it's a great question and i and i think i'm, I'm going to begin by saying that in candor i can only offer my um, thoughts and experiences, I don't, and I, I, the book is really clear, there are no heroes in this book, not, not me, um, uh, not, uh, you know, very few other people. I try to be sympathetic to all the players that, that 
had a major role in this as it unfolded. Um, but they're, they're really hard questions, what you're asking. Um, and I'll, you know, give, give some examples. I mean, you know, so like the Occupy movement, okay, that I, I actually went up to New York and my sister was a, my, one of my young, I had three younger sisters and one of them was a freelance journalist at the time who was writing about Occupy and living in, uh, living in New York. And I spent a day, you know, there watching the Zuccotti Square and, and my question as I, you know, somebody who was interested in government, you know, who'd been in the House of Delegates as a legislative aide in Virginia and had worked as a counselor to, to a governor. And this was before I got in office. I was like, well, where is all this going to go? Um, because ultimately you have to, the, the, the ultimate goal is change, right? Of, of passion in, in, a, in democracy and, and progress. And that means policy. And policy means that you run through government. And you're even seeing this debate happen right now between you know, Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And AOC is saying there's incredible value to being in connection with all these people out there. And then this is happening the last week with the, these incredible protests about Minneapolis. But still, there's this question about where is this going to go? What is government going to do? And government means it's going to be elected officials voting on bills it's going to be you know in areas where administrative officials like city managers are much more powerful it's going to be those folks and police chiefs uh implementing policies and the frustrating thing is that work is much more technical and it requires you know setting aside compromise uh or some of the other ideas that we've talked about it requires uh, patience, focus, facts often, and research can really improve what you're going to do. The uh, you know evidence-based policies. I mean, you can enact a policy that's not really going to help people. And as we seek to you know stop police brutality, for instance, there are nettlesome, crucial details to why bad actors and bad apples, despite sweeping policy changes have not been able to, have still been able to uh, enact police brutality. That's just one um, problem. Like I know that in Minneapolis, they have mandated implicit bias training by every officer. The police chief is a, is a, is a dedicated, uh, committed anti-police brutality leader. He interviews every new police recruit, things like that, but still they had what happened there. So you need better change, more radical change. The question is, what is that going to be and how do you implement it? And the, the book is, uh, is about that problem. And, I, um, and, it's, and it's a, uh, it, it's, I think it's a constant battle. I think the, the best local leaders are probably the ones who have, who are the heroes, who know how to, A, make frustrated, angry uh people with extremist leanings feel heard and feel listened to and i talk a lot about in the book about how i if i were better you know i, I could have done a better job at that maybe now if i was reenacting all lessons i do a better job but i think that um that making people feel heard hearing them listening um taking it in and then uh, having that be a part of your leadership and your policy making is incredibly important. Um, 
I think that if you can track the people who just want to tear things down onto the hard work of actually writing a better school budget and acting better police policies, um, that is unbelievable to watch. So in Charlottesville, we set up a, so this is a civilian review board for that I voted for that was going to oversee the police and the police resisted it in a lot of ways. And to staff the board that was charted with even envisioning this, creating it, we brought in some of the most anti-police activists. And it was interesting to see them start to meet and be subject to FOIA laws and have to sit down with administrative staff and really run meetings and, and, and craft a new set of bylaws that were going to govern this civilian review board. And they did a good job. And all, they, they, they talked to some of them about what a different process it was coming from being an activist to being inside government. And that transition is what needs to be highlighted and focused on is that the activism has to translate into making policy. And, uh, and I, and, you know, I think what we, you know, it, it's one thing about whether you're going to become one of these policymakers, which I think is really important. And I want people to do that. I want as many activists as possible to go into the system. Um, then there's journalists and scholars actually caring about that transition. Um, and then there's really calling out the, what I think there are malignant forces who want to continue just to destroy institutions who are anti-institutionalists no matter what. And they really are anarchists. And from the top down, I mean, Donald Trump is not interested in policymaking. He's not interested in whether a wall is actually being built. He's not interested in any of the facts about tear gas or he's only interested in how it can become a agitation and a picture and a, and a tweet for his base who then are engaging with it through this warped, you know, uh, mindset of, of that social media creates. And it's, the, it's about the worst thing that could happen for deliberative democracy, because if you become untethered from what you're doing in government, and it's just about what you're saying, what you're doing, or how you're performing about it, you really are off that island and into that raging sea. And then it's just about might make right. And that scares the hell out of me. I, I just want to under, sorry to interrupt, but I, I really want to underscore one thing you just, you mentioned about being heard and the importance of being heard, because when you when you listen to people, when you allow people to to vent their frustrations and express their grievances, you have to acknowledge them as a human being. They're not a stat. They're not a member of a racial group or an ethnic majority or minority or anything like that. They become a real life person. And whether you agree with them or disagree with them, the tenor of your discussion and your relationship, I think, is going to be very different. And social media public opinion in general is very interesting because, and I've wrestled with this and I go back and forth on this, but it it does allow individuals to express themselves, but increasingly you become not an individual in this world of public opinion, right? The individual kind of disappears and you become, you look for ways to explain people away as stats and other things. And I think that's, that's why your experience in, with Charlottesville, your experience in local and state government, I think is so vital because that's where individuals are going to most directly be able to participate in politics and to reveal themselves as to who they are and what they think and how important they think the policies they support are. And and, and that's where their opponents have to grapple with them. And, and if we can't do that, then our system doesn't work. I think that's very well put. 
I want to jump in here and kind of do the our last round of questions as we um, as we run out of time. But I kind of maybe looking at what happened in in Charlottesville a few years ago and looking at what's happening in in 2020. I think I see this question of extremism a little bit differently, or the might makes right question, because all of our all of our democratic instincts and all of what we've been trained in is exactly this, right? To hear everybody and include everybody, and it's pluralistic, and we don't exclude viewpoints on the basis of the substance of what they're saying. Um, but it, it seems to me like one of the lessons that I've uneasily taken away from the last few years is that defeating extremism especially when people merge their speech or their extreme views with their with with violence and with brandishing weapons that that there is an element of of might makes right that's just pragmatically there and i don't really know how to reconcile that i mean it's uh, that's the that's the fundamental question and and uh, and I, this this is a this i go into this in the book i mean you you have as the guy charged with running these meetings, you know, you're, you're the chair of the board. Um, and when you had real disorder uh, taking over meetings and meetings, I mean, there, there were actually takeovers at, at times and at such outright heckling. And it's, it was fascinating. I, I tell one story in the book about this woman who was one of the most uh, kind of public prominent activist critics of us and of me and an African-American woman who grew up in Charlottesville in public housing who ended up becoming mayor. And I ended up seconding her nomination for mayor after the Unite the Right rally to, to follow me in the, in the seat. She um, came in as a pretty active heckler. She, she wouldn't follow a lot of the rules in the chamber. She, she said that in, um, in this whole Roberts Rules thing that I was exhibiting authoritarian tendencies. And then she ended up once she was in that seat, having to use some of the same rules that I did and clear the chambers a couple of times. And uh, the, the book is about, you know, it's kind of a, a personal case study of what just what it is to fight for the basic precepts of of a functioning democracy at the local level when when these extremes are colliding against one another. So you had people on the far left who were coming in and taking over and disrupting uh, the, the proceedings. And I had to kind of stand up against them. And that was incredibly hard. And, and I probably could have done a better job of making them feel heard while I was also trying to uh, maintain order. But from getting to know more mayors around the country, I've, I've come to understand that this is pretty common. It's just not making the news a lot of the time. Uh, but that's still a, a process. And then obviously you have the far right or a thousand times worse in my experience who are actively brandishing weapons. I mean, there were people coming into the council chambers because Virginia is an open carry state, openly carrying weapons. And due to, a, you know, even just the way that the law works, you can ban weapons in courtrooms in Virginia, but not in city council chambers um, because the cities are, are prevented from by the state legislature from regulating firearms. So you had these kinds of displays of intimidation and, and violence in your face. And so you, to me, the, the, all of this amounts to it being even more urgent to fight for a functioning deliberative democracy that can still achieve substantive 
policy victories that matter in the lives of ordinary people. And that's not just tilting at windmills or trying to create memes or trying to create narratives. And that is aware of what it's doing in all of those, in all those regards. And that explains what it's doing. And that refocuses people on the fact that policy is what's going to make a difference in people's lives and that engages them in the, in the details while making them feel heard in their rage and their frustration at, at institutions and, um, and invites people into the policymaking process, but that also draws a hard line at anyone who would, who would disrupt it and take it over and, and convert it. And you're seeing that debate happen just this last week with, you know, the line that's being drawn against by some of the nation's most prominent civil rights leaders like John Lewis and, you know, Val Demings has spoken about this and, and um, they've said that the looters and the, and the violent rioters are hijacking the cause and that you really need the, you know, peaceful protesters who have a goal in mind and want government or they're petitioning for grievances. They want government to listen and stop police brutality and, and, and finally stop systemic racism and, and address institutional racism. And there's a whole host of, of, of answers to that. Um, but you need government to actually do them rather than having to deal with, with, with violence and with, and with looting and rioting. And that's a debate that's happening right now. And I, you know, in this little kind of prehistory, real history of, of all of the things that happened when neo-Nazis invaded Charlottesville and the reactions to them and how we tried to stop them. I mean, we haven't even gotten into this conversation into the First Amendment debates, but they're very relevant to what we're talking about now, which is there are abstract feelings we have about hate speech, but then there's the actual laws that the Supreme Court has mandated local government apply and the questions that they're allowed to ask. And that's where the devil is in the details of all of those questions when it comes to handling um, events like the Unite the Right rally. And people were very angry that we weren't able to stop it entirely or prevent them from coming. And it was very hard to explain what the actual rules were that the Supreme Court has mandated and the kind of intelligence that we needed at the time of planned, imminent, unlawful events that we that nobody was producing from the federal government on down. And that the devil was in the details and the details are what really matter. The details are what government is about and what, what courts have to change. I do think change needs to happen as a result of all this, but I'm still laser focused on the need to reclaim government and educate and engage and bring people into government rather than just into uh, the, the anti-institutional outrage that has become the default mode for a lot of, for a lot of activists and advocates. And that's, that at its end is, is, is why I wrote the book and, and, and what I hope that this story um, serves to, serves to, you know, to, to move forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. We could probably record a whole nother hour or more talking about, you know, some What's of the stuff that's, that's going on now. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, particularly on, you know, early June 2020, no one knows how this will how this will unfold or what the, what the outcome will be. So here, you know, we want to be mindful that we're recording in the, in the midst of this. So we're coming up on an, on an hour. Um, I want to give everybody a chance to have some, some brief uh, final, final takeaways from the episode. What have we, what have we learned? Lee, kick us off. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the point about bringing people into the process uh, is incredibly important uh, because I think being part of the process, 
Uh, one, it makes you feel like your voice is heard, which is, I think, incredibly important. And, you know, two, I think it, it forces you to reconcile with some of the trade-offs and actually hear people who have dissenting views and, and think about them as participants as well. And, you know, I think the the, the failure of our politics, I think, ha- has been precisely the fact that so many people feel like they are unrepresented in the process. They don't have a party that represents them. They don't have politicians that represent them. They don't have they don't have a, a way of making their voice heard. And the only way that they can feel like they are heard is either by, you know, screaming into the Internet or, you know, or, or engaging in, in potentially disruptive behavior. Uh, you know, so I think that's really important. I think there's, you know, M- Mike's view of, of history and confronting an extremism, you know, seems to, you know, is optimistic. And I appreciate that op- that optimism. You know, it has that sort of Hegelian view of, uh, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And, you know, ult- ultimately, I, I, I want to believe that. But I think that there are, you know, that that depends on a political process that, that gives people a way in and you know i feel like one of the real failures of our national politics is that there there's just not a way in and there's just this increasing hyper polarization drawing sharp you know you're either with us or against us and there's no way to to find a new dimension of conflict that would allow for a resolution yeah that that makes sense james final thoughts what have we learned from this uh, I've learned a lot, and I'm going to be thinking a lot in the weeks ahead about this. Um, and I, I want to thank Mike again for for joining us. I want to encourage our listeners to to check out his book. And you know, as I think about this, self government and government by consent uh, also implies the right to dissent, and it implies, I think, inherent in both of that, and both consent and dissent, is that there is a place in which people consent and dissent. That's the public realm. It's politics and. That's most apparent, I think, at the local level and the state level. It becomes a little bit more detached and harder to wrap our heads around when we get to the the, the national level, Um, although institutional uh, venues like Congress are sort of vitally important. And looking at what's happening in the nation right now, looking, uh, reflecting on what happened in Charlottesville and and the actions of people um, uh, such as Mike and, and trying to grapple with that in real time, I think should be very humbling um, because ultimately, but also emboldening and it should empower us because ultimately that space is buttressed by the actions that people, the self-governing people take to to express themselves in politics. And so there's a choice there. And I think that we can all do better in terms of listening to one another and to acknowledging and affirming one another and trying to welcome each other into that realm of acceptable political conflict, if you will, in rejecting violent conflict. But that's a conscious choice that we have to make. It's not something that government administrators or bureaucrats are ultimately going to make for us. We're not ruled. We are rulers. And that has a lot of responsibility and that goes with it. And I, I think that this moment can can be a, a, a good one for the nation um, looking back in, in the future if it can help uh, help us remember that, that politics is a good thing and that participating in it is a vital thing to secure our freedoms and our liberty. You're here. All right. Excellent. Um, Mike, as our guest, do you want the, the last word? It's just been a great discussion, and it's a, it's a privilege to talk to 
people who are, you know, with political science backgrounds, because there's a lot woven in through this. And that was one of the, the kind of unique aspects that I brought to this. It, it's very intentionally not a memoir. I mean, it's meant to um, be a first person account, but that lens, you know, from thinking about these problems for 20 years is something that I, that I brought and how I saw a lot of what was unfolding. Um, there's some things that we, that we weren't able to, to touch on in the conversation. I just would, would touch on them very briefly. The, the book actually goes into five different brush fires that, that came together in this unique firestorm. And there's, uh, there's, they're, they're each kind of their own topic that unfolded over this period of three years. One was the debate about civility. One was race statues and public spaces. Um, one was freedom of speech and public safety in that conflict. One was how do you produce accountability after a time of crisis? And then the final one was how do you achieve equity in a, in a period when people are so inflamed and enraged? And, and each of those fronts, there's a lot that Charlottesville both stood for, stood against, uh, lessons that they came out of it. Um, and so I would encourage um, folks, if they have a chance to pick up Cry Havoc, to, to read it looking for, for those other um, those other pieces too but this this was a wonderful conversation and i really appreciate the opportunity yeah thank you so much for for joining us mike signer check out his book cry havoc this has been another episode of politics in question thanks so much for joining us thank you for listening to politics in question the show is a joint production of new america and the r street institute and our producers are elena soros shannon lynch and jason stewart theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.